how very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. He said, Jesus himself said, the Son of God. In this law, he said, dwelleth all the law and all the prophets. Childish matter, Scott and I impishly danced around his body before he was dead. Just strangely enough, it was a rush, a teenager's rush. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah! Hello, strangers, and welcome to another episode of Strange Talk Podcast. Now, um, if you don't follow me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast, then you will not know the episode that I'm going to be working on. Originally, I had intended to plan on doing an episode with that Rocky the Collector. Um, he has his own podcast known as The Collection. But unfortunately, doing, due to time constraints, just because he lives in New York and he's three hours ahead, I'm three hours behind in California. So uh, we weren't able to, you know, get our schedules aligned so we could be able to make time to record because we're adults and we're, and you know, we're busy with life and stuff. He has kids. I have one daughter. So sometimes, um, life just happens and we weren't able to get that episode again. I know I've been promising you guys the duo serial killers episode, um, for quite some time, but unfortunately no, but what I did have for you guys, if you don't follow me on Instagram at strange talk podcast, then you won't know what I'm talking about. But, um, on my podcast, on my podcast, <laughs> on my Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast, um, I had posted in my stories um, a couple of cases that I was thinking about doing for a future episode, and that's the episode I'm going to be doing right now. And uh, the, both the cases that I had was one was called that I'm going to be calling um, "Who Killed Jane Doe." This is the one that you're going to be listening to right now. And then the other one was the Wonderland Murders. Well, you guys voted substantially for um who killed jane doe and so that's the episode that i'm going to be doing for you today um so thank you to each and everyone who actually took the time and voted for the episode um so you guys won <laughs> congrats yay so you guys are now going to hear the case of who killed jane doe okay so i hope you guys enjoy it now let's get to it so in march of 1991 it was in the early morning when two hunters happened to find a young girl's lifeless body lying in a field. She was partially decomposed and had numerous wounds all over her body. When detectives arrived to gather evidence, they had discovered that she was sexually assaulted after she had died. Even more shocking was the fact that her hands were cut from her body. After a search of the area, the young girl's hands were eventually found, but the tips of her fingers were ripped off. Whoever killed this young girl knew she had a past and did not want her found. Unfortunately, because of the brutal manner in which she died, detectives could not determine any identification of her. Her face was so swollen from being beaten that detectives had to create a composite picture of what she might have looked like when she was still alive. They plastered that composite picture all over news media and papers hoping someone would come forward with who she was. It grew a considerable amount of attention, but no one came forward. Eventually, detectives adopted her as their own and held a private funeral for her where she was buried in Forest Hill Cemetery in Madison, Wisconsin. 
Among the detectives were reporters and individuals who had not known the victim, but wanted to pay respects to this nameless victim. One person who attended, attended <laughs> was named Ruth Wagner, who said that her own daughter was murdered a few years back, and I felt I needed to be here. Eight months later, detectives received a phone call from a group home in Decatur, Illinois, who believed that the nameless young girl was a former resident of their group home, and that her name is Doris Ann McLeod. Detectives travel out to that group home to confirm that information. They discovered that it is true, and learned that Doris had been in 17 different foster homes over the years. Doris was being sexually assaulted by her father and was taken from her home and put into foster care when she was only 10 years old. Traveling to different foster homes wasn't the life Doris wanted for herself, so when she was 16, she decided to get on a bus and never look back. Now with this new information and a name for their victim, detectives used news media asking for any information about Doris and McLeod. A few weeks later, detectives get a tip from a sex worker saying she knew Doris and her pimp and his name was Joseph White. Joseph White was an African-American man who had a criminal past. He was affiliated with a gang of pimps known as the Gangster Disciple Nation. Detectives were on the hunt for Joseph White and went to his home to bring him in for questioning. When they arrived, detectives knocked on the door, but there was no answer. Joseph had slipped out a window in the back, all while leaving his three-year-old son, Joseph Jr., behind. That's fucking sad, but yeah, I guess he slipped out the back of the window and just said, fuck it, <laughs> yeet, as the young kids like to say nowadays. But a, a uniformed officer had been told to stand guard outside and quickly captured White and arrested him. The next day, they went back to White's home with a search warrant and was met with White's wife, Elaine, Elena, and asked to search their home. She agreed, and while they searched the home, one detective asked Elena if she knew who's, who Doris Ann McLeod was after handing her a picture. Elena said she had no clue who that was. It wasn't until Joseph's three-year-old son, Joseph Jr., came up to an officer and yanked on his belt and said that the girl was named Dee and she lived in the basement with the monster. Detectives questioned further and found out that Doris, or Dee as Joseph Jr. called her, was living in Joseph White's basement. And Joseph Jr. said that the monster got her, which is why she's not here anymore. When detectives asked what he meant by not being here, Joseph Jr. had the detectives follow him into their home's basement and pointed up at some pipes. Joseph Jr. said that one day he came down here and saw Dee hanging from the pipes, and that he had seen the monster bite off her fingers, and the monster yelled for him to go back upstairs. During the search of the home, the detectives found Doris's ID card and clothing that had belonged to her. They had all they needed. Now, when Joseph Jr. says that he saw the monster, if it's not obvious, which I'm sure it should be obvious, the monster he's referring to is Joseph White, his father. Oftentimes, when kids experience something super traumatic, they tend to separate their parental figure and then they just replace it with something that scares them because since they're so young, they can't, they can't really comprehend what it is that they're seeing. So in his mind, he sees his father as a monster, but he separates the two 
the monster from his father and only sees the monster doing those horrible things compared to actually seeing the real person who his father is doing those horrible things. After questioning White, detectives learned that Joseph had met Doris on a bus in December of 1990 and that he was persuading Doris into becoming a sex worker. Doris finally gave in and snuck out a window in her group home in Decatur, Illinois, and met with Joseph at a convenience store, but she was arrested shortly after and sent back to the group home. In February of 1991, Doris ran away again with Joseph and succeeded where he wanted her to be a sex worker. Ultimately, Doris did not like being a sex worker and started to refuse taking on the work, and as a pimp, you can't just say no, and this isn't the first time Joseph's had to punish one of his workers. Joseph beat Doris, but not too much, as she was what he called a snow bunny, which is a term given to young white women in the business, and she was going to make him lots of money, or so he thought. Doris still refused, so Joseph had no choice but to get rid of her. At his trial, Joseph refused to have a lawyer. His ego was so big he figured he could win his own case. Sadly, Joseph was never charged with the murder of Doris Ann McLeod because all of the evidence was circumstantial. There was no actual evidence linking him to the murder. However, he was charged with interstate transportation of a minor for the purpose of prostitution. And further, the judge charged him with loss of life, saying in court, this is what he said, I want to make it clear, Mr. White, I'm not going to sentence you because you murdered this young woman. You might have. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I don't know. There is no or even sufficient evidence for me to conclude at this time on this record that you did, but you put into motion a scenario that had the inevitable tragic result that this one did. By putting this young, emotionally disturbed teenage runaway without any direction in her life on the streets, meaning the kind of characters that one can meet in that situation, in my view, was foreseeable that she could end up like she did. Maybe not with her hands mutilated, but certainly her death was under that circumstance is not an unexpected event. Joseph White was sentenced to more than 80 years and will not be eligible for parole until the year 2073. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's a long time. Um, I, I found an article when I was doing the research for that that said that um, by the time it's the year 2073, he will be more than 100 years old and there's no way that he will probably even reach that age. But hey, you never know. But that is crazy. Um, so yeah, that's the first case that you guys voted for. Um, I did a lot of digging for this. So what I found, even though it's there's really not that much, so I'm sorry that it's a short episode. Well, I mean, short case, it's not an episode because we're not going to be done. Because since it was so short, I decided to include another case that I'm going to be discussing. But um, yeah, th this was all the information I could find. I looked up everywhere and hopefully you guys still enjoyed what you heard. Um, but it's a short and bittersweet um, case. But I thought it was interesting because it took a while for people to actually even discover who um, Doris Ann McLeod even was. Nobody really knew. And I saw I actually read a newspaper article where I got that little snippet of information about Ruth Wagner. I happened to find um, an old newspaper clipping because um, you know how you can go back and I don't know if you know, but you know, you can go back and look up 
like actual newspaper articles from back in the day. And I actually happened to find that one that was written about this girl because at the time they didn't know who she was. And so the local newspaper wrote an article about her. Um, they called her Jane Doe. Um, about how, you know, there was no family to claim the body, so nobody knew about her. But then eventually when they did find out about who she really was, who she was, um, Doris and McLeod, they found out her troubled past. And it's sad because she ended up being murdered still, so she could not catch a fucking break. And that's so sad because she really tried and she just did not want... You know, she wanted a better life, but unfortunately, for some reason, God just handed her the card that she was dealt, and he was like, no. <laughs> nah, I'm just joking. But, because it wasn't, it's it's not really God, it's just <laughs> fucking evil people in this world. But, yeah. So, unfortunately, that the, is the first case, and that is all the information of Doris and Mc, McLeod. So, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. So, let's move on to the next case. So we're moving on to the next case, and the next case that I have for you guys is one is going to have a shit ton of information. Um, and so this is all the information that I could find from it because it happened quite a while ago. It happened in 1977. Um, so it was it was actually one of the worst um, murder cases, I believe, to this day in Oklahoma's history where it happened. Um, and so maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. I know a few other podcasts have actually dived into this, um, uh, particular case. So, you know, who knows, but this is the case of the Girl Scout murders. It was summer of 1977 and camp season was about to begin for children across the United States. Every summer, Camp Scott, which was located in northeastern Oklahoma in Mays County, about three miles south of Locust Grove, would host Girl Scouts aged from 8 to 18 for two weeks. The campsite was very remote and covered 410 acres. On June 12th, around 140 Girl Scouts departed from the Magic Empire Council Building in Tulsa, Oklahoma, heading to Camp Scott which was about 50 miles east. The camp was split into 10 different units, within which there were around 7 tents for campers and a counselor's tent. Girls were assigned to units dependent on their age. Kiowa Unit was the most secluded of the units because it was surrounded by dense forests. Now, Kiowa Unit, that is actually the name of the camp, well, the tent that these particular girls were sleeping in. There were 27 Girl Scouts in Kiowa Unit, and they were split into seven different tents. The girls arrived. Uh, when the girls arrived, they were assigned to their tents depending on their birth dates. There were four girls per tent, but Tent 8 was short of one girl. The girls in Tent 8 were Lori Farmer, who was 8, and the youngest girl at Camp Scott. Michelle Geis, who was 9, and Doris Milner was 10. Tent 8 was the last tent in the row of at the Kiowa unit. Of all the tents, Tent 8 was the most remote and the only one not visible from the counselor's tent due to the showers blocking the view. At around 6 p.m., the girls ate dinner and then made their way back to their tents due to a large storm which began around 7 p.m. All the girls were given the task of writing a letter to someone at home 
as there wasn't much else to do given the fact that there was a storm, so there wasn't really anything else they could do activities-wise. The first night, there were unsettling noises coming from within the trees. These were described by camp counselors as something like a low, croaking sound, similar to a bullfrog. There were also strange lights appearing amongst the trees. Camp counselors were said to have flashed their flashlights at the mysterious light in the woods, and it would disappear, only to reappear once they stopped flashing the flashlights. There were also reports from Girl Scouts in other units claiming they heard a girl screaming during the night, but they either did not tell their counselor from their unit at the time, or they did tell their counselor, at which point they were told not to worry about it. It was assumed that if there was a problem, the counselors from whichever unit it was coming from would take care of it. Um, you also have to keep in mind that the camp counselors were only teenagers at the time. If their actions don't sound rational or like something you would do, think about how they were also pretty much just kids as well. Nobody knew that the night of June 12, 1977 would be Camp Scott's last. The events unfolded over the course of the day would leave a dark smear on the reputation of Girl Scout camps not only in Oklahoma, but across the nation. Around 6 a.m. in the morning, one of the camp counselors at Kiowa Unit was making her way to the showers when she spotted something. An object which appeared to be a discarded sleeping bag near the edge of the trees. She found this to be very odd and went over for a closer look. What she discovered was horrifying. It was the body of Doris Milner, partially nude, badly beaten, and clearly deceased lying outside of her sleeping bag. The authorities were contacted immediately and soon turned up at the campsite. Two more sleeping bags were discovered not far from Doris's body. Upon further investigation, the dead bodies of Lori Farmer and Michelle Guise were found inside of their sleeping bags. Now, there's been plenty of reports that said this, but none can actually confirm if it was true. Some say they weren't, some say they were, but it is, I'm just going to believe it, that uh, all, all three of those girls that were murdered were actually sexually assaulted. Michelle and Doris definitely were, as they had their wrists bound behind their backs and had been gagged. Lori was not bound or gagged. Michelle's ultimate cause of death was strangulation, while Lori and Michelle had been killed by blunt force trauma to their heads. When they were discovered, investigators determined that Lori had likely been killed first, then Michelle and Doris was last, due to the time of decomposition. The rest of the Girl Scouts were not told that three of their campmates were dead. They were taken to participate in activities away from the campsite until the buses arrived to take them back to the Magic Empire Council in Tulsa. <laughs> that name sounds very weird. It's um, I don't know, it just seems like a fictional like fantasy name. The Magic Empire Council. Parents were informed that were parents were informed that something had gone wrong and that they would have to pick up their children at the council building. The really terrible thing here is that the parents of Lori, Michelle, and Doris were only informed that there had been an accident at the camp. A meeting took place in which they were told their children had died while at camp. It wasn't until media reports came out that they found out that their daughters actually had been murdered. That sucks. That's kind of a shitty way of handling the situation, I would say, on the Girl Scout side. 
Funny thing enough, two weeks before the murders, a council, well, it's not really funny, but it's just strange. Um, but two weeks before the murders, a counselor at Camp Scott reported some items stolen, such as eyeglasses. She also claimed she had found a note inside an empty box of donuts, which said something to the effect of, four girls will be murdered at camp this summer. However, believing it was just a prank, she threw the note away, and it has never been found after that. Mays County Sheriff Pete Weaver headed up the investigation into the murders. The investigation turned messy quickly. From the very beginning, completely avoidable mistakes were being made. Don't forget, this actually happened in the 70s. We were still kind of fresh. You know, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, it was what, only like 10 years after we even created the term serial killers. So you have to, um, you have to remember that, you know, police, the police are trying their best, but just not doing a good job. <laughs> Firstly, the scene was not secured immediately. The crime scene wasn't secured immediately, as it should have been. This meant that it was pretty much a free-for-all for investigators and camp staff to wander through as they pleased. The bodies, however, of the girls were protected right away by officers. Given that it was the 1970s, like I said, forensic analysis of bodily fluids was limited. This meant that there was only so much that could be done with the swabs taken from the girls. In other words, if these murders had happened in the 80s, they would have been able to gather more information. If they had happened in the 90s or 2000s, it's likely that forensic evidence could have been used to solve the case. But unfortunately, it happened in 1977, which is why I think um, so many murders back then just, I feel like serial killers back then were more prevalent due to the fact that, you know, criminal technology, no, I wouldn't say, that's not to sound like the right fucking words, <laughs> I would just say that technology back then wasn't as advanced as it is today, so, you know, people were, were able to get away with a lot more. So there was blood on the floor of the tent, indicating the girls had initially been attacked inside and then carried outside. At the scene, investigators discovered a number of items, a flashlight with a fingerprint on it, it did not belong to anyone from the campsite, they discovered. A crowbar, a bloody boot print in the tent, black duct tape, and a long black hair. The first suspect investigators focused on was Jack Schroff, who owned a ranch near Camp Scott. At his home, black duct tape was found as well as rope, which appeared identical to that which had been used to bind the wrists of two of the girls. However, Schroff claimed that his home had been broken into and a number of items had been taken indicating the items at his ranch were a replacement for those that had been stolen. Schroff took a polygraph test and passed. He also had a solid alibi for the night of the murders, and therefore was cleared as a suspect. Sheriff Weaver then came up with a new suspect, someone whom he had encountered a number of times, 33-year-old Jean Laurie Hart. Oh, I'm sorry, Leroy Hart. I said Laurie. <laughs> Even if Hart did not play a role in the murders, he comes across as a really bad guy. Given his past criminal convictions and the fact that his mother lived about a mile from Camp Scott, Sheriff Weaver thought he was a good suspect for the murders. Hart had already escaped from prison twice. The first time he was in prison was for raping two pregnant women, 
tying them up and putting tape all over their faces, then taking them out in the middle of nowhere and leaving them to die. Miraculously, one of the women was able to break free and get help. Hart was caught soon after his first escape, but was paroled not long after for the rapes and attempted murders. Why? I don't know, because it was the fucking 70s. Then while on parole, Hart was arrested for burglary. This time he was given a life sentence for breaking his parole. Why was he not given this sentence for the rapes? I don't know, because it's rapes. I don't know. <laughs> we just have a different time back then. Guess what? Hart escaped from jail again, and this time he was actually gone. No one can find him anywhere. This happened in 1973, and when the murders took place in 1977, he was still on the run. There's a large Cherokee community in the Cookson Hills, of which Hart was a part of. Hart was well-respected and surrounded by people who wanted to help him and protect him from law enforcement. They all seemed to think Hart was a pretty great guy. Several days after the murders, some hunters discovered a cave which appears inhabited. In the cave, there are a number of items, including photos which Hart possessed while he was in jail, women's glasses, and newspapers. Inside of the flashlight discovered at the crime scene, there was some crumpled up newspaper pages found, which appeared to be match, which appeared to be the match the new, which appeared to match the newspapers in the cave. It is unsurprising that investigators come to the conclusion that Hart spent time in the cave recently. Perhaps the most interesting thing found in the cave is a note written on the wall which reads, 77617, The Real Killer Was Here, Bye Bye Fools. An informant, possibly someone who was threatened by police, tells law enforcement that Hart is living with another Cherokee man by the name of Pigeon in Cookson Hills, about 50 miles east of Camp Scott. Law enforcement find Pigeon's residence and trap Hart inside. They ask him if he killed the girls, to which he replies, You'll never pin it on me. Ha 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 ha, fools. No, I'm joking, but he actually said you'll never pin it on me. After this, he no longer speaks to law enforcement, claiming he wishes to speak with his lawyer. Investigators search the resident of Pigeon where Hart has been living and do not find anything of interest. They search again and the second time find items that the camp counselor claimed had gone missing before camp even began. Pigeon claimed these items were never there and had been planted in his house. This is also speculation that Sheriff Weaver actually had the photos which belonged to Hart in his desk at the Mays County Jail and planted them in the cave, therefore tying Hart to the cave. By this point, Hart's supporters are defending him so aggressively that the victim's families need police escorts in the courthouse to keep them safe. This is so shocking and awful to think that the that first their daughters are murdered, and then at the trial they are in danger of attack by people who so vehemently support a man who is already a convicted rapist. The trial turns quite the circus as the defense carefully dismantles the prosecution case. The bloody, the bloody footprint in the tent was too small to be hearts. The fingerprint on the flashlight was not a match to hearts. The swabs taken from the girls were not conclusive. They were similar to Hart's, but not guaranteed to be a match. It was claimed the hair was Hart's, but again, it only looked like Hart's hair. It doesn't mean it was. They emphasized the possibility of evidence being planted to frame Hart. After hearing the evidence and how unclear it was, the jury took only six hours to deliberate. They found Hart not guilty of the murders, and he was acquitted of any charges. 
Many believe and still do believe to this day that Hart was guilty of the Girl Scout murders. However, a lot of the evidence supports the idea that perhaps Hart was not alone in committing the murders, but had an accomplice. This would explain the bloody blueprint, the bloody boot print. I don't know why I want to keep saying booty. The bloody boot print that was not Hart's size and the fingerprint was not Hart's. It is hard to comprehend that Hart murdered all three girls on his own, given that no one heard any commotion coming from Tent 8. If there was more than one perpetrator, it would have been easier to keep them quiet. It would also make more sense that two people tied up Michelle and Doris. I've also read that the knots used to tie the girls looked different, suggesting that there were, they were tied by different people in different articles. Nor were their attacks consistent between the girls, again indicating two perpetrators were involved. The girls were found about 150 yards away from their tent, so they would have been carried out. There is the possibility that the perpetrator planned to take them away from the campsite, which is just not something one person could do on their own. There are so many possibilities about what really happened, but no one truly knows what happened. Sadly, only the girls and the perpetrator who committed the heinous act. After the jury ruled Hart not guilty of the murders, he was taken back to prison to serve the remaining of 305 years of his previous sentences. However, just two months back in jail, Hart had a massive heart attack and died instantly at age 35. The parents of Lori Farmer and Doris Milner filed a $5 million lawsuit against Magic Empire Council, accusing them of negligence, which resulted in the deaths of their daughters. They argued the threatening note found by the counselor should have been investigated and that their girls were unsafe due to the location of their tent and how far it was from the counselor's tent. The jury ruled in favor of Magic Empire Council, therefore deciding that the deaths did not occur due to negligence. Doesn't that fucking suck? Fucking Girl Scouts. Now, in 2008, back in 2008, I mean, because 2019, bodily fluids from inside the tent were put forward for DNA testing with more advanced forensic technology analysis. No answers actually came from this. However, due to the de deterioration of the samples being too great. Then, in 2017, the current sheriff of Mays County set up a fund to raise money to carry out DNA testing again on remaining samples, this time with even more advanced technology that might bring some answers. The fund raised $30,000, but unfortunately there's no other information given about this, so there hasn't really been an update, so we're kind of just... <laughs> we're kind of just... Kind of just like on the fence about this. And unfortunately, that's where this case ends. Now, I know plenty of you enjoy a case that has an ending, but unfortunately, it does not. Maybe we'll find some answers after the uh, the the sheriff who actually did a Kickstarter so they can raise money to actually do some DNA testing. Maybe we'll find some answers from this. But the last article that I did find that even discussed about how the new sheriff's county i mean the new sheriff of mays county even raised a kickstarter and actually reached their goal of thirty thousand dollars um there was an article back in 2018 about how they said they they finally reached their goal and they plan on you know doing the dna testing 
but that was back in January of 2018, and there has yet been anything. So I don't know how long of a process it actually takes for DNA testing to actually happen, but um, hopefully we'll get their answers. And, you know, you'll know as soon as I know of any fucking news from this shit. But it, it is a sad case, and it's an interesting one because it's kind of like the Zodiac Killer in a way. Like, we all know it was that particular guy. I can't think of the name off the top of my head. But if you've ever seen the movie, um, The Zodiac Killer, The Zodiac with fucking Jake Gyllenhaal. I know, I know, I know. But um, if you've seen that movie, there's the particular character where even Jake Gyllenhaal kind of knows. And it's that one scene when he goes back to the store, the convenience store, that I, or it's a pharmacy store, a convenience store, I think it is. And Jake Gyllenhaal kind of has that moment where he's just staring into the eyes of that person and somehow he's like, I know it's you. And they kind of, they don't actually particularly say anything. He just says, what can I help you with? And Jake Gyllenhaal just kind of looks at him. And I don't know if it's because of the sound of his voice or just because there's something about him that's off-putting. They kind of just have a moment where they stare at each other and he's like, I know it was you. Um, but then later on, um, that guy died of a heart attack as well. And so we'll never truly know if he was a Zodiac killer because evidence like back then was just really hard to like do testing on because we just aren't equipped with the technology we are today when it comes to evidence and everything. But unfortunately that's a sad case. There was no truly, there's truly no answers or ending to this case, but this is the case of the girl scouts murder. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. So unfortunately, that's the end of this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed the two cases that I had for you. I hope you guys enjoyed the first one, which is Who Killed Jane Doe. Also, her real name is Doris Ann McLeod. Um, I thought that was an interesting one because of the fact that it took so long for them to even figure out who she was. And the fact that she was only 16 years old or 17 years old, I believe, when she was murdered, which is really sad. Um, and she just wanted a better life for her. And unfortunately... Just the circumstances and her situation that she was in just uh, it sucks. Um, and then the Girl Scout murders. Um, it is a well-known case, so maybe you have heard it on previous podcasts before. I know Crime Junkie Podcast, I believe it's called. Uh, they did an episode on that. So if you want a better um, dive into the Girl Scout murders, I suggest go and listen to... Um, crime junkies podcast they did an episode about them or generation y i think is what they is the podcast i'm thinking about but there's so many true crime podcasts but having said that there are so many true crime podcasts out there that i'm thinking that you chose to listen to strange talk podcast because without you the listener strange talk podcast would not be what it is today and it's crazy that i've only been doing this for about a year now and it's gotten to the point where it's gotten i did not I, I never in my wildest dreams thought it would be where it is today. And I'm, I'm thankful to each and every one of you who come back and listen to each episode. Um, take the time to listen to good old me uh, just talk about different true crime serial killers and whatnot or what have you. Um, it's been a while since I've actually done a paranormal episode only because I just I've actually been looking for one. So if you know about one... Um, uh, and you want me to actually cover it, you know, why not send it to me? You can send it to me via email at strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com. What's that email again? It's strangetalk 
podcast at outlook.com or you can send it to me if you're following me on instagram at strange talk podcast that's my instagram so just send it to me via dm i'll be more than glad to take a look at it i'm actually looking into a couple right now i'm not really too sure if i want to do them yet but i do have something planned because it is now the month it's halloween has begun it's halloween time it's spooky time it's spooky time it's time to get spooky everybody um so it's exciting it's the month of halloween as some would say it's all hellish eve but um so i'm glad for that everybody's gonna dress up all the dumb girls gonna dress slutty all sexy and whatnot but it is a time to have fun and the witching hour which is every hour every hour at a particular time at night um, I don't know, because I, I hear about different times. I one per, I forgot where I said, I think it's at 3 o'clock in the morning. Somebody had told me, oh, that's the witching hour. Then somebody, I heard somebody else say that it's at 3.33 in the morning. So I don't really fucking know. But nothing's ever happened to me because I work nights. I'm usually up at that time and nothing ever fucking happens to me. Which is also why I don't believe in the paranormal. But I want to believe in the paranormal but i have yet to actually experience anything i've only experienced one time and so if you're a new listener and you haven't and you're dying to know what the experience is um i'm pretty sure i talked about it in a previous episode i don't know which episode in particular i I talked about it but i did talk about my experience that i had with so-called paranormal so go back and just listen to all the episodes till you find it um yeah but Again, thank you for listening to this episode of Strange Talk Podcast. Um, As always, stay strange.